in the beginning years of um, my meditation practice, it was my great blessing and privilege to spend a couple of years doing intensive silent meditation at a retreat center in Western Massachusetts. And at the end of that period, I returned to South Africa, where I was born and where I grew up. And my feelings about returning were really very mixed, were ambivalent. I'd left in 1974 after increasing involvement in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. My life was becoming increasingly endangered. And I and my friends were quite frequently trudged and beaten up and jailed and dragged around, often tear-gassed. And I left really very disillusioned. It was a kind of exile, because if I'd remained there, I probably would have ended up in jail. And many of my friends actually died in jail in South Africa at that time. So I was back in South Africa after these two years of meditation practice. And I was sitting in front of the television one evening with my mom and dad, looking at the news. And the Prime Minister at the time, P.W. Buerta, a really overbearing Afrikaner man, was doing what uh, he used to do every evening. He was there and he was wagging his finger. And he was, and he was saying, Yalla betuachers, you protesters. Yalla communista, yalla studenta. He says, don't think you're going to overthrow the fatherland. He said, we're going to get you. And he was like wagging his finger. And I felt like rising up in me, that indignation. I was so angry and I just felt like, you know, I was ready to fight again. And this amazing thing happened. There was like a flip. It was like my heart flipped. And I knew in that instant, that this man believed as deeply and as dearly in the policy of apartheid and separation as I believed in the exact opposite. And for the first time, as I looked at his face on the television, I saw all those lines of fear and anguish etched across his face. It just kind of broke my heart. I saw all the fear. I saw all of the unhappiness and the frustration that was there. And to my great surprise, I felt an immense upsurge of compassion for this man who was trying to hold together a system that was falling apart wherever you look. And for me, that was the beginning of a complete revolution, inner revolution, in respect of my relationship with this country that I loved so much and which had generated such rage and a sense of betrayal in me. And what I'd like to do this afternoon is speak about the birthing, the arising of compassion, and kind of talk story a little and share with you some of the lessons I've learned over the years of um, uh, on this template of, of, of compassion. So often in our world, to cultivate an open heart, a loving heart, a compassionate heart, is so often considered a, a rather passive, docile, 
sort of ineffectual endeavor. There is frequently this notion that to have an open, compassionate heart is to be something of a Pollyanna, to live life with a smile on, on our faces and really not do very much else. And it's my unwavering sense over the years that compassion has nothing to do with those qualities, that I think compassion is perhaps one of the fiercest qualities of the heart. It is a strength, the compassionate heart has a courage and a splendor to bring us face to face unequivocally with the true nature of suffering in this human realm that we all share. I feel that if our compassion is true and authentic, it must bring us face to face. We must be able to stand and witness the suffering both within us and around us. It requires, my senses, a kind of ferocity of spirit to absolutely identify and name injustice around us and in an unflinching and unwavering way to act without hesitation, if necessary, forcefully, strongly, and without compromise. In the Buddhist text, it said that a heart that is filled with compassion is a trembling heart. The cultivation of a trembling heart in the face of suffering. If it had a voice, compassion would say, I understand the suffering I see before me, for I too have suffered. It is a part of my life and it is a part of yours. I care and I share your suffering. From the perspective of true compassion, when one person is imprisoned on our planet, we are all incarcerated. None of us are free. When one woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, all of us, men, women, and children, are malignant. When one of us, one person is starving in Africa, we are all hungry. When a child is abused anywhere in the world, we are all traumatized and violated by that event. And when one person, an infant, a woman, a man in Africa is diagnosed with AIDS, we are all infected. None of us are immune. This, I feel, is the essence, the foundation, and the ferocity of real and true compassion. In the scriptures, they talk about the near enemy of compassion. And the near enemy is considered pity. When we have pity for someone, there's a distance. It's almost as if we say, that poor person over there is suffering. And there is a real feeling of disconnection from that fellow human being, a feeling of distance, a feeling of separation. This is not compassion, this is pity, and often the two are confused. The succinct definition 
of compassion in the scriptures is that it is the response of an open heart to suffering. The response of an open heart to suffering. A trembling heart. It's a response without resentment, without aversion or guilt, and without any feeling of being overwhelmed or debilitated in any way. It's the capacity to be open through all our senses. You know, in the meditation practice, we, we experienced the body, which is one of the senses, the changing sensation, the heat, the tightness. It's open with our whole body to the suffering of the world. It's open with our ears. We did the uh, hearing to, to really be fully open with the, with the sense of hearing to be open with our eyes, to be open with our tongue. Hi, Anne, come on in. To be open with all our senses and with all our heart to what it is that is around us. I'm reminded of that wonderful saying of Christ in the Gnostic Gospel, where he says, what we bring forth from within us will save us. And what we don't bring forth will destroy us. What we don't bring forth will destroy us. Be willing to come face to face with the truth of things, including suffering. Suffering is this deep, deep wish to, uh, uh, compassion is the deep wish to dissipate the suffering, both within ourselves and around ourselves. And it embraces all who are suffering everywhere without discrimination and to bring them into our heart. The phrases of loving kindness that I offered at the end of the meditation practice, may all beings be happy and peaceful, filled with love and kindness and compassion. May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. This is the spirit of, of compassion. Those of you who know me know that I'm a great lover of Hafiz, the great Persian Sufi poet with unquestionably, I think, one of the greatest hearts we humans have ever had. And this is what he says. He says, let my words become like a skilled potter's hands, quieting, smoothing your life without their knowledge reaching into your tender core and spreading you out like the morning that leaps from the sun's amused wink onto hills, brows, and the backs of so many beautiful laboring beasts. He says, God's duty is to make perfect all your movements of mind, of limb, and your ascending shape of laughter. Watch the way my hands dance with their diamond-edged brilliance, cutting you open with music reaching into your heart and spilling the night sky jar you carry that is always full of giggling planets and stars. My words are a divine potter's wheel. If you stay near me, please, please stay near me, and I will spin you into love. What a wonderful, compassionate heart that is.
classically in the suttas, in the teachings of the Buddha, it said that there are two steps in the development, in the flowering of compassion. And the first one, and perhaps the most important one, is just to recognize the suffering that is there in our lives. Sometimes the suffering is so gross and sometimes it can be so subtle that we don't even uh, realize it's there. Perhaps you may have experienced it when you're sitting sometimes. No matter how comfortable you try and make yourself, there always seems to be something that is not quite all right in the sitting posture. It's a little bit of heat, a little bit of tightness, and just that can be the most subtle kind of suffering. Things are not the way we'd like them to be. After the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, his first sermon, uh, setting the wheel of the law, the wheel of truth in motion, he, he offered the Four Noble Truths. And the first of the Noble Truths is the truth of suffering, that there is suffering, his very first teaching. The second one is the cause of suffering. And the third one was that there is an end to suffering. And the fourth of the truths is actually the way, the path out of suffering. And looking out over the human dilemma, this poignant uh, existence that we all share, this is what he said. He said, inconceivable is the beginning of this samsara, which is this wheel of life and death of which we, we, we are all participating. He said, not to be discovered is the first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths, which do you think is more? The flood of tears which weeping and wailing you have shed upon this long way, hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths, united with the undesired, separated from the desired, this or the waters of the four great oceans. And then he says, Long have you suffered the deaths of fathers and mothers and sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, and while you were thus suffering, you have shed more tears upon this long way than there is water in the four great oceans. And thus have you long undergone suffering, undergone torment, misfortune, and filled the graveyards full. And he wasn't doing this to terrify the living daylights out of the nuns and monks and lay people. He was just really trying to, to bring his, his students face to face with what is true. Because only the truth, as Christ said, uh, will free us. This truth of suffering. Suffering within us, just through the course of the day, there are so many ups and downs. So many winds of change within us constantly. We don't get what we want. We get what we don't want. There's suffering. And for me and for many people, one of the most acute kinds of suffering is the suffering of conditioning. Conditioning is like the wiring that we have, our habitual tendencies, our patterns within us, that if if allowed to 
to manifest without awareness can um, be so painful. I remember in those early years, in meditation years, I began to understand how I was so profoundly, as we all are, conditioned by the circumstances of our upbringing. There was alcohol in my family, and just beginning to understand how the substance abuse in, in my family really had defined me, and how I was wired in a particular way, that if my buttons were pushed, uh, I was reactive and there just because of the circumstances in which uh, I grew up. The sexual abuse of my infancy and childhood profoundly wired me and conditioned me in a particular way. I began to understand that if a person looked at me in a particular way, it could be real scary as it evoked history or touched me in a particular way. There were certain kinds of emotions, feelings of betrayal sadness and anger and rage, they were all a part of this wiring, this conditioning. One day in those early years, I was, uh, I'd, I'd left the retreat and I was walking through Northampton, which is a town in western Massachusetts, it's very uh, white area, there are hardly any people of color, and I was walking along the street and on the other side of the road I saw a black man. And the immediate thought that went through my mind was, what is he doing here? He should be in Soweto. And then it was like I looked at this thought, and it was just completely automatic. It totally broke my heart to realize just with all the loving kindness that I've been doing for two years of intensive practice, all the self-examination, there it was. I saw something, it pushed a button, and that was the thought. It was like... I began to understand that I could not have grown up white and privileged in South Africa and not be white in some sort of racist way. It was really heartbreaking and going into those patterns and really feeling them breaks the heart but it's also free. I have no doubt that that moment when I sat in front of the television and saw P.W. Boerter that the capacity to the heart to flip and tremble as it did had quite a lot to do with me recognizing, acknowledging, taking responsibility for that particular pattern that day in Northampton when I saw the black man over the street. The suffering, recognizing <coughs> within us and around us. Certainly these last months, the suffering around us has been so obvious and so relentless. With the events of these months as they continue in Afghanistan and the Postal Service, just breaks your heart. And sometimes it can be really hard to accept the suffering that we see around us. Because by and large, in our discomfort with suffering, we have tried desperately to create a society and a culture that can avoid it at any cost. In this society of denial, it seems like we'll do almost anything to protect ourselves from the suffering of others when people get old, we send them often to nursing homes and facilities 
so that we very often can be protected from what they're going through. It is so difficult for us to accept our aging. If there's pain, we live in a culture that will take painkillers rather than just be with it for a little while to see if it's actually necessary. The meditation practice can be such a, a powerful template for exploring the limits of what we can be with. If we're sitting, for example, and there's pain in our knee, is there a capacity to just be with it without going into a reflex movement? And sometimes, if we just be with what's going on in our body, it changes and it doesn't necessarily have to define us. We live in a society where there's a drug for anything that happens, and anything from alcohol and television reading, etc., to remove us from the suffering that is there. And it seems like we are particularly adept at creating platitudes that remove us from the truth of what is going on. Just think of all the euphemisms for dying. You know, they've moved on. They've gone to a better place no longer with us, always often of just removing us from the finality and the reality of what has happened. As many of you know, I made a trip to the Dominican Republic since we were last together and uh, got to spend lots and lots of time in airports all over the country as I crisscrossed my way around. and. Um, so many people, particularly down in the Miami area, were wearing these t-shirts about uh, America United. And I really got to think, you know, about this United We Stand stuff and, and thinking, well, it's always wonderful when people are standing together and are united. But I'm just wondering, what is it here that we are united in? And it seems so much that, you know, in a country of such racism and such economic disparity where there is homophobia and where there's all sorts of religious arrogance and intolerance, just how are we united? Well, we are united, it seems, significantly in our thirst for vengeance and in the identification of an enemy. And while there's been this enormous outpouring of love and, and connection, as evidenced in New York, I sometimes wonder to what extent that compassion and that care extends beyond the perimeters of, of our country to include all human beings everywhere. Because it feels like the real heart of compassion is the one that extends in every direction without discrimination. recognizing suffering, hopefully bringing us to a place of deep self-acknowledgement and acknowledgement around us that there is suffering, there is this first noble truth. And in coming face to face with it and recognizing it, it feels like then the situation becomes workable, then the landscape is succulent, and then every possibility begins to reveal itself.
And this brings us to the second stage, which is the challenge of opening to the suffering. First recognizing it, then opening and befriending the suffering that is there. And this is, for many, the real dark night. You know, coming face to face, open-eyed with the truth of things, is never really easy. We begin to see how instinctual we are as human beings in our endeavor to deflect, to displace, to try and control and choreograph things so that we can avoid really coming face to face with what is. I sometimes think, you know, you know, uh, with the television set, you know, we can turn on the television set and there's suffering, you know, everywhere, you know, we look, there's suffering, but we have the capacity to turn it off and it's almost like we can then return. Do we as human beings bring ourselves wholeheartedly? I wonder if all of if we as a species brought ourselves to the battlefield of Afghanistan truly without the privilege of a knob on our television sets and saw what was going on, whether that would still be happening and whether the war would have its allure, I don't know. And of course, when we, when we feel this and when we open to it, there, there must be guilt, there must be rage, there must be fear. But the practice offers us the possibility of not being defined by these emotions. It is so easy to be reactive in fear and anger. But can we acknowledge them and just be with them for a while and not be defined by this? And this capacity to not be overwhelmed and reactive is, I feel, the landscape in which compassion is born just to stop, to feel, to acknowledge the suffering, and be willing to be uncomfortable, brings with it so much possibility. To be able to not only dwell in the culmination of things as we see them, we see something terrible, and to not only be there with what we see, but to have the wisdom and the care to perhaps look at all the constituent factors, all the cause and effect that birthed the circumstances, I feel is a courageous perspective and the road certainly less traveled. To be able to look at the whole picture, the whole catastrophe, and then respond to the situation. I lived in Iran for, for four years and traveled widely there and had many friends. And again and again, I was really shaken by the circumstances under which children were being brought up there. They were being brought up so circumscribed by the traditional ways there, young girls who were barely able to walk, were immediately wrapped up in veils and they were immediately circumscribed by, in black. What hope is there that that young girl will grow up into a woman who is balanced and loving and adjusted? And so too, the young boys were grown up and schooled in the ways of, of um, that had so little breath. I really wonder what chance there was that those boys would grow up in a balanced, 
sincere, loving, open-hearted and embracing kind of way. And even though when we look at events and we can never condone what is going on, it seems really important to go back to the roots and dwell there. And sometimes those roots can be so painful and yet it feels terribly important that if we are going to live in a culture of interdependence where we all, without distinction, are a part of a web out of which we can never fall. We need to go into these dark corridors and go beyond our automatic responses and begin to really feel how difficult it is sometimes for some people, given the circumstances in which they grew up. It requires a kind of ferocity. Rumi puts it this way. He says, You that came to birth and bring the mysteries, your voice thunder makes us very happy. And then he says, Roar, lion of the heart, and tear me open. Roar, lion of the heart, and tear me open. Being willing to see and open to everything. And as with all of these practices, what the Buddha, the Buddha called them the divine abode, the loving kindness, the compassion, the sympathetic joy, which is a kind of happiness in the happiness of others, and equanimity, all of these really begin within ourselves. If there's not a consolidation of love and compassion within ourselves, it's really impossible to extend it to another. And so many of us treat ourselves in ways that we'd never treat anybody else. We are so unforgiving. There is so much inner conflict and self-crucifixion there. And somehow, perhaps with the practice of meditation, we can open to these tendencies, to these patterns that we have, this conditioning to be self-crucifying and begin to heal those and hopefully begin to hold these patterns and these tendencies with a kind of compassion that we never got when perhaps we were younger and those patterns came into being. To give ourselves the love that we never got seems absolutely imperative. Last year, I was my great privilege to spend some time with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. It was a gathering of uh, Western teachers, and he was asked, what is, do you think is the single most important thing for us as teachers in the West working with our students? And he said, unquestionably, he said, you really have to deal with the pervasive self-hatred that there is. He said, it's the single greatest stumbling block to transformation and opening. He said it's not like that in the, West, in the East. We have our own particular constellation of problems. But in the West, self-hatred is, is a, a grave, grave concern to him. So many of us are focused on other people, taking care of the needs of other people, pleasing other people, trying to avoid conflict at any cost, pacifying those around them. And in this endeavor, we deeply disconnect from who we are. We can lose all sense of ourselves, all sense of a kind of personal uh, alignment. And so the practice 
spiritual practice perhaps is a way of, of coming home to ourselves, of hearing our song again, hearing what is being forgotten, developing a healthy sense of self, being able to honor our capacity, honor our limits, and to bow to the edges of fear that are there, really holding ourselves with a kind of compassion. It's terribly important. And then, of course, the big challenge is how we then extend this out into the world, how the compassion manifests. It's really a very individual thing. Everybody, I think, has their own particular road to travel. I'd like to, to close by just sharing a little more of, of uh, my own adventures in, uh, in South Africa. Shortly after that evening in front of the television, I was out in the sugarcane fields where I used to love to walk. And I was out there walking one day, and um, all of a sudden I heard this like crashing behind me. And I thought, oh my God, it's like, it's one of two things. It's a python, because there are these big cane pythons there, or it's the baboons. And you really don't want to run into either a python or a baboon in the sugarcane fields. And I was deep in the sugarcane fields, and it was getting closer and closer, and I was walking faster and faster. And all of a sudden, this man jumped out in front of me, black man, and he said, hi, I'm Armstrong Zulu. And I said, hi, you know, I was really happy to see you. <laughs> and uh, we started talking. He was, he was unusually uh, friendly and very talkative. And, you know, I told him, you know, who I was. I told him I was a CPA and I was, you know, home in South Africa. And he said, oh, well, great. He said, you know, I'm writing my, my bookkeeping. Can you help me with my bookkeeping? And he was like, he wasn't holding back. And I said, sure, you know. <laughs> so I said, come to my parents' apartment, you know, tomorrow night. So I went home that evening and I said to my dad, I'd invited Armstrong to come. I was going to help him with his bookkeeping. And my father said, not over my dead body am I going to have a black man in my apartment. So I called up Armstrong and said, it's not going to happen. We're going to have to do it somewhere else. So he said, well, why don't you come to the school where I'm at? So I said, sure, I'll come to the school. So the next morning, I, I got up. I went down to the train station, I, and I bought a ticket to Umgababa, which is where the school was, which is a black area. Now, in South Africa, as we, we're traveling down to Umgababa, you you go through a white area, black area, white area, black area, and the doors open, all the black doors open for the black areas and all the white doors open for the white areas. And so when I got my ticket, I said, I'm going to Ungababi. He said, no, you can't, it's a black area. So I said, well, I'm going there. You know. So he told the police, the police got on the train with me. When we got to Ungababi, I got off, and it was just like the sea of black people who were all getting on the train to go to Durban to work, you know, and I was the only white person, and I'm climbing up this narrow staircase, and they're all like bumping me and jostling me, and I get over, I was absolutely terrified. I was the only white face, and I was standing at the bottom of this mountain, looking up to the school that was on top of the mountain, 
And it was like, it was one of those moments where the practice really blessed me with the capacity to really see that fear as, imp as impersonal. Because if I'd, if any part of me had known that that, had thought that fear was me, I would have been out of there. And so I walked up this long mountain to the school to meet Armstrong and started working with him and some of his friends for, for a couple of weeks. They went off and wrote uh, their exams and the headmaster asked me if I'd continue to teach at the school. I said, yes, I would. Meanwhile, back at home, my father and I weren't talking. <laughs> Every morning I would get up, I'd make cornmeal for me and him and I would leave his on the stove and I would go to, to the train station. He was furious with me because they began to know who I was in Ungabad village where all the local people who worked in the building cleaning it and everything. So they would come up to my dad and say, oh, Mr. Harrison, your son's teaching my children. This is so great. And he was like, oh my God. <laughs> so for me, one of the most important things about what happened on that mountaintop really the, the thread went right back to that moment in front of the television set. I really knew that it was not about enemies. It was just about people struggling to make the best of their lives. And I w as I s started getting more involved at the school, I realized that these kids were being taught math and they didn't have textbooks. That there was no running water. We were drinking water off the asbestos roofs. There was no electricity. The kids were walking 12 miles to school on empty stomachs and passing out in the classrooms. They were required to read books, but there was no library. And it was amazing because I started going to all the white schools and saying, you know, I'm a teacher at Umgababa, and, you know, our kids don't have books to read. They don't have textbooks. You're worried about how many computers you've got and you want a second swimming pool. These kids don't even have food to eat. And again and again, it was like they said, well, what can we do? And we started driving truckloads of books. And, and um, my mom's church started a feeding scheme. And there was slowly this kind of integration that, that began to happen um, up on that mountaintop. I went to a, uh, uh, a local... Uh, Hindu Swami there and said to him, you know, these kids, there's 70 or 80 in my class and um, it's just impossible for them to teach. He said, well, what can I do? I said, well, you know, you could build some classrooms. And he gave us like 400,000 rand, which is a lot of money to build classrooms. I said, why are you doing this? He said, you know, we've been thrown out of every country in Africa. And he said, South Africa is the very last place. And soon, he said, this will be a black country. And there's nowhere else for us to go. So he said, we will do whatever we can to make friends with the black people, you know, with the Zulu people, which was the area where we were living. It was just an amazing thing to see again and again people like, well, the culmination of the story is one morning, I was leaving and I didn't have time to make porridge. And my father said, what's the rush? I said, well, I've got to catch the train. He said, make porridge, I'll take you to the school. 
And I said, okay, so I made porridge, we had porridge, we get in his BMW, you know, <laughs> off we go, off like the tarred road onto the corrugated bumpy road to Kumgabab and up we go up the mountain. On the way I said to him, you know, would you help me buy the wood for the shelves in the library because we had like five or six thousand books that all the white schools had donated. And he said, no. He said, once you get involved in that, there's no end. No. So I said, fine. You know, so, so we get to the top and he says, well, I better just come in and have a look at what you're doing there. So I said, fine. So we, we go in, we look at the shelves. The old headmaster comes, who's a black guy, the same age as my dad. And um, they started talking and my father said, you know, he said, if I leave this to Gavin, it's just going to be a, a, bloody, <laughs> a bloody mess. He said, he said, I think I'm going to build these shelves. <laughs> so that afternoon I go home and my mom is like all excited because you know she's like the peacemaker you know trying to get my my dad and I together she says she said your father didn't know I was here but he said the phone rang today and your father picked up the phone and said hello yes this is Mr. Harrison oh no it's my son you want what do you want him for oh you've got some encyclopedias because we had an article in the local newspaper he said Oh, he said, where do you live? He said, you know our school there up in Umgababa? <laughs> our school? Those kids don't have any encyclopedias. This is great. He said, I'll come and pick up the encyclopedias. And he went and picked them up and put them with all the other books that I was storing there, but he never told us. Anyway, eventually he came up and I got some students out of my class and to help him with the shelves and he like looked at me and said, are you leaving me? <laughs> I said, yes, you know, I've got a class to teach. And it, it was amazing and I tell this story because I feel like, you know, those of us who are blessed to hear these teachings and to practice them, it feels so important, it feels almost like a responsibility, if you will, that we have to live these particularly in these heartbreaking days, as wildly, as extrovertly, and as openly as possible, because I feel it is infectious, and all human beings want to love and to be compassionate. We just have to help reminding the world how it is that we can be. On the last day that I was there, my green card came through. I was returning to the United States. We had this big day where we invited everybody who'd helped us build the classrooms, the feeding scheme, the library. Kids have gone off. Uh, this, this foundation was teaching the kids how to grow vegetables in a very easy way, and they were teaching their parents, and we had scholarships. We invited everybody to come and celebrate what had happened. And so there we were. All the kids had brought avocados and mangoes and papayas and stuff, and we didn't know who was going to come, you know. And so we were all there just waiting, and then it started happening, because we could look down the mountain, we saw like busload after busload of white kids and teachers and people from the municipality. These were white people who'd never ever set foot in a black area before. And when those school kids came up, these white kids in the bus, and they looked out, you could just see the look on the faces of the black students who were like, uh-oh, you know and the white kids and the teachers, and there was like 10 seconds of 
what's going to happen, and then they just all melted in each other. It was incredible. It was like the most incredible moment of my life. I felt for the first time I'd done something that had made a difference in my country. And I believe it all started that moment in front of the television screen where my heart flipped and I saw that the Africana was not my enemy, you know. And certainly the black person was not my enemy. It was, it was wonderful and the kids sang and they did all these little readings and recitings. And then I spoke and I looked at the back of the crowd of people and there were like hundreds of people there and there was my dad peeping around the corner, <laughs> tears pouring down his cheeks, you know. And it was just a couple of years before he died, so it was wonderful. And when he did die, the kids came from the school and sang at his funeral. I mean, he was probably turning in his grave because all these <laughs> white friends were there, you know. But my mom actually asked people not to send flowers, but to make a donation to the school. Umkababa, this wonderful mountain on top of, uh, in the Valley of a Thousand Hills. Earlier this year, as some of you know, it was my privilege to spend time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And in the minutes that we were alone together, he blessed me with, I think, the greatest gift of my life, which was he just invited me in to feel within him the utter emptiness and the incredible love, the totality of emptiness and love that he is. And the dancing laughter in his eyes was an experience I'll never forget. And he really reminded me what a gift it is to be fearless and to be compassionate. Because in a way, he's kind of seems to be one of the ultimate manifestations of that on the planet. Compassion. There's a story I'd like to close of this time when 2,500 years ago in one of the monasteries where the Buddha was staying there was this really sick guy, this monk, he was really sick and the scriptures go into great detail talking about how his he had pussy sores and they were weeping and, you know, he was really sick and he was dying. And the Buddha went to visit him and discovered that nobody was taking care of him. And he was really upset and he called all the nuns and monks together and he said, um, He said, if we do not, monks, look after each other, who will look after us? When you look after each other, you are taking care of the truth, you're taking care of the Dharma. That important is he felt that we take care of each other. I lived in Vermont for a while, for a couple of years, and the poet laureate of Vermont is a man who's in his Galway Canal. And I'd like to close with this poem by Galway Canal. He says, the bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, 
to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow, and the sow began remembering. All down her thick length, from the earthen snout, all the way through the fodder and slops, to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the blue milken dreaminess, spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of the sound. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.